We have been looking at how Peter in this in this book is describing how to be able to handle uh, suffering, especially when talking about in regards to the cause of Christ. And I, I find it amazing that Peter is writing to Christians who are dealing with uh, pretty severe adversity and pretty big problems because they're trying to follow uh, Jesus and live lives in accordance to what Jesus wants. And as Peter then goes throughout this, this letter and his first letter, uh, he keeps describing, here's the way to look at your circumstances. And then based on this new look, how to live your lives in regards to that. And that's what we're going to spend some time on in chapter 4, is in the first six verses of of chapter 4, there's going to be these uh, different ways to look at life and different ways to live because of what it means to, to be a Christian in a culture and a society that is growing in its resistance toward God and, and his people. You will notice that in chapter 4 and in verse 1, he, he begins by saying, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh <clears throat> has ceased from sin. Let's just start with that picture for a moment. Is that Notice he says, I, I want you to put on some armor. And sometimes when we think about Armor, we, we think about what we have over uh, with, with Ephesians talking about the armor of God and the various pieces of it. And, and here is another picture of an armor that is to be put on. I want you to arm yourselves. But with this, he says, I want you to arm yourselves with a particular way of thinking. In that being the people of God, it's going to require a different outlook toward the world and a different outlook about what it means to follow him. And you see that in verse 1 when he says, Christ suffered in the flesh, and I want you to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. And that's a repetition that Peter does all throughout this letter, is he keeps making points and drawing the attention of the audience back to the example of Christ. For example, back in chapter 2 and in verse 21, Peter wrote, for to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. You have Peter constantly saying, I want you to see the suffering of Christ as the example that you are going to be following. And here you see in chapter 4, he does that again. Since Christ suffered in the flesh... I want you to arm yourself with the same way of thinking. I want you to be prepared to suffer just like Jesus suffered. I think one of the big questions that comes up as you would start the reading of that is, well, why? Why is that the case? Why should the follower of Christ have a mentality, an expectation for suffering, for following for his name? And notice how he presents this at the end of verse 1. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Now you might have read that. That is a really strange way to say that. What do you mean that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from, from sin? But I want you to think about what he's getting at is that for the Christian who makes the decision that I'm going to live my life to the will of God and not to the pleasures and the desires of the world, 
then you are going to suffer for that decision. And to help with the reading, I wrote it in the opposite of what he said, which is whoever is not suffering the flesh hasn't stopped sinning. That's, that's the whole idea of what he's getting at here is if you are making the decision to not sin, that's going to cause you problems. That's going to bring about suffering. And that's what he's starting to lay out that we have to have a mentality for it and have a recognition of is the choice to be different from the world and to live differently from the world is going to have consequences. And so the first verse of this is, I want you to arm yourself with the same way of thinking as Christ because Christ suffered for righteousness sake and you're going to suffer for righteousness sake. Why? Because when you make the decision to cease from sin and to follow God, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be hardships. There's going to be difficulties. And I think that's important that we need to kind of zero in on for a minute. Because our world is changing for this to be more true. And I think that's what's becoming difficult for us. Is that we've been accustomed to being able to live our faith. And there not be consequences. And that be okay. And nobody really has a problem with that. In fact, it was kind of a positive. It was promoted. At least you were ethical. At least you were hardworking. At least you had some kind of societal benefit. And so being a Christian who said, I don't participate in those things, was not really a negative for a long time. But generally speaking, that's been the case, that it is a negative and we're starting to see that come back into play now. And, and that's what Peter is talking about is that decision to live a different life and to have a different way of thinking is going to cause problem in this world. And notice how he expresses that a little bit more in verse two. He says in verse two, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And I want you to see something important here. He says that to be a follower of Christ means that we will live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer... For human passions. We almost have a time right now where the world says you can follow God and follow your passions and you do whatever you want to do and you do what seems best and you do what feels right. And I want you to notice that Peter says, no, there's a decision that is being made in following Jesus. And the decision is I'm not going to do what my human passions and fleshly desires want to do anymore. He says in the verse two, I'm going to spend my time doing what God wants. That's what the follower of Christ does. That's what a disciple looks like. I'm going to say no to my desires. Yes, I know I want to do it. Yes, I know my flesh says that's going to be enjoyable, pleasant, comfortable, whatever it is. But we are making a choice that we are going to do the will of God and not follow our own passions and our own desires. Now, I want you to notice the wording of this, though, because I think it is interesting how he says this. 
In verse 2, he says, or verse 3, he says, For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. I like the way that, that Peter words that. Because Peter words it in such a way to say, because you realize you have wasted far too much of your life doing that. You lived your life following your passions. You lived your life doing what you think is best. You lived your life following your desires. And that was a waste. It was useless. It didn't get you where you wanted to go. And I dare say that should be what a person's mindset is who comes to Christ is an understanding the way of the world is a waste. I need a new way of life. I need a new way of thinking. I've spent all of my time doing what the world says is right and good, and it's a waste. And that's what Peter's putting his finger on in verse 3. We understand that following our passions is emptiness and vain and useless. And I love the motivation that he's putting under that, that we have a clarity of thought. We're going to stop sinning because we know that's a really terrible way to live life. That's an awful way to choose. It's vain. It's a waste. And the time that we have spent doing that, we need to just say we've had enough. We're not going to spend our lives doing that any longer. And so you see a picture of a different passion that is being given that the heart of the Christian wants to spend the rest of one's life that God has given to him or her doing the will of God. I was thinking about that idea for a minute. And I thought there's a there's a spiritual maturity to that. When we're young, we kind of think that we have all the time in the world. And then you kind of start moving along enough that the numbers start creeping up on you and you start realizing, I don't have as much time ahead as I had behind. (laughs) And it is suffice to say that the time wasted doing senseless things needs to be done. I think about that with my own life. I, I go around saying I'm more than half dead now. I mean, that, that's the reality of it. I've lived more life than I know I'll have. Even if God gives me a long, old life, I've already spent over half of it. And there's this idea of an understanding. Do you want to spend what days you have left doing the empty things of the world that you know are no good? Why would you make that decision? And that's what verse 3 is driving it. The time that we have spent of the past doing those things, we have wasted that time doing what the Gentiles do, do, living in sensuality and passions and drunkenness and orgies and drinking parties and lawless idolatry. We have wasted enough time on those things. And you think about your life in terms of a framework of how much time could you redeem if you could set all that aside and buy all that back and live for the will of God. And so Peter says there's a mature thought process in understanding the passions that God wants us to live for him so that we are not following our empty passions anymore because we know it is futile. We're not pulled by those sins anymore because we know we don't want to waste any more time on this earth doing those pointless, empty or sinful things. Now, why does the world care? That we make that decision. 
you know, you would think, hey, you want to live for God and not follow those passions and desires anymore. You know, you do you. (laughs) Why is that not the case? Well, I want you to notice there's an explanation of that in verse four. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. I think this is an interesting picture that Peter drives at. They're going to be surprised that you don't join with them. They're going to be shocked when you don't follow the passions of your heart. They're going to be stunned that you live your life in a way saying no to the things that would be what the world would say yes to. They're going to scratch their head at that. They're not going to understand it. I love the the wording of that. They are surprised that you are not living the same kind of life that they're living. They're surprised that you don't join in with them. They're surprised that you don't condone what they're doing. They're stunned at that. And Peter gives a picture of that because a disciple not only doesn't participate in it, but doesn't agree with it. And that's ultimately what the problem, the, the collision comes down to. Is It's not going to be enough for them to just say, well, you're going to make your choice. I'm going to make my choice. This is always the issue that comes about is that darkness doesn't like light. It never has. It never does. And that's what's being depicted here, because notice it doesn't just say in verse four, oh, they're going to be surprised when they don't join you. That's always when I grew up as a kid, the only part I remembered. I'm going to try to do what's right. They're going to be surprised that I'm not doing the same things that they're doing and living like them. I didn't pay attention to the rest of the sentence. The rest of the sentence is, and they're going to malign you for it. It isn't that they're just going to be surprised and walk away. They're going to be surprised and hurl abuse at you. They're going to malign you. They're going to slander you. They're going to say things against you to your face and to others Because you won't run with them. Because you won't make the same decision with them. And so I want us to hear again this picture that the Christian doesn't participate in the things of the world. Now do you hear what Peter is driving at of what the big temptation is? The temptation is this. Because I don't want to suffer, I'll go along. Because I don't want to be abused, I don't want to be maligned, I don't want to be slandered, I don't want to be mistreated, I'm not going to say anything. I'm going to participate. I'm going to agree. I'm going to say it's okay. And friends, are you starting to feel the weight of that in our culture? You starting to feel the weight of that? You need to agree if you don't want to suffer. You need to give your stamp of approval. You need to be heartily endorsing or you're going to feel it. You're going to be maligned. You're going to be called all kinds of things. You're going to be told that you're intolerant. You're going to be told that you're hateful. You're going to be told that all kinds of things about who you are because you won't join in nor will you approve. This is exactly what Peter is talking about is when that weight and pressure comes in that you're going to suffer. There's a real easy temptation to cave and go, it's all right and participate give approval, agree, 
with the things that, that are going on. The reason for the suffering is because we're not going to participate with them. The reason for the difficulty is because we're not going to join in with them. And I want us to be thoughtful, especially in our culture, as we continue to move further and further from God, that they're going to be shocked that you don't agree with the world standards. They're going to be surprised. That's what Peter said. They're just going to be stunned that you could possibly believe what you believe. They're outraged by it, and they will malign you for it. Peter said, guess what? Arm yourself with the same way of thinking of Christ because that's what happened to him. And the person who chooses to cease from sin is going to suffer because of it. And he's giving the reasons why. Because you realize what a waste of time that is. And they're surprised that you don't give yourself over to it. And they are going to malign you for it because darkness does not like light. So how are we supposed to handle that? I don't think anybody would raise their hand and say, I like verbal abuse. I like to be mistreated. I like for people to malign me and slander me. It's hard When you know that's going to be the outcome. When you know that people who are close to you, people that you care about, people that your friends are going to do that. So what are you supposed to do in those circumstances? Glad you asked. Look at verse 5. Verse 5 says, But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. This is a really... Really, really important teaching. Peter says, here's what I don't want you to forget. They're going to give an account for the things that they do. If they are going to malign you, they are going to slander you for not joining in, for not approving. But here is God reminding us they are going to have to give an account. Listen to how Peter worded it earlier in the letter. He said in in 1 Peter 2, verse 22, He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. And it's time to go, how could he do that? It is amazing to watch that in the life of Christ, isn't it? Here he is on the cross. If you're the son of God, come down. Oh, he's calling out for Elijah. You know, if he really is who he says he is, let's see it. When he was reviled, he didn't revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus sets the example instead of retaliation. Instead of responding in kind, which we talked about last week, where we saw Peter in the third chapter, verses 8 and 9. Don't give insult for insult. Instead, give a blessing. How can you do that? Because they're going to give an account. And friends, here's what is so wonderful about that. That's what frees us to do right by people. That's what frees us to love our enemies. That's what frees us to do good in the face of evil. Because you know they're going to be accountable to God. 
So I don't have to hold it on them. I don't have to try to bring justice on their head. They're doing something wrong to me. I got to do something about it. I got to make sure they get their repayment. I'm going to be the judge right now. He says, we don't do that. How can we not do that? Even though they're maligning you, mistreating you for doing what's right. He says, because you know, they're going to give an account. There is an accounting that's going to happen. Listen to how the Apostle Paul worded that idea in Romans chapter 12, verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. I just, I mean, stop right there. I mean, don't, don't let that run by your ears. Bless those that persecute you. It's not just bless those that kind of don't like you. Bless those who are actively hurting you for the, because of your faith in Christ. Bless those that persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Asking for a lot of self-control here, right? (laughs) All right. I'm going to bless and not curse. I'm going to bless those who persecute me. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own eyes. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, as much as depends on you. Man, that's that's the statement right there. You're putting it on me. As much as depends on us, live peaceably with all. Here they are persecuting. Here they are cursing. Here they are maligning. And as much as you have the power to do something, you're going to live at peace with them. He's not done. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Hmm. But leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry. Now, how would you want to fill that in? Smile with a deep smile and cross your arms and go, that's what you get, buddy. Man, that'd be how I'd want to say that, right? You're getting what you deserve. Here's your comeuppance. Don't you dare come across the people of God. Right? If your enemy is hungry, feed him. You imagine doing that to someone who's abusing you, maligning you, persecuting you? It's the context he's talking about. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not over, be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This is how we love our enemies. How can we possibly not avenge ourselves? How can we possibly feed an enemy who's hungry? How could you give your thirsty enemy something to drink? Because they will give an account. That's what Peter is saying. Peter is saying they're going to give an account. They're going to be held accountable to God and we do not have to hold them in account. Instead, we can overcome their evil by doing good. And that is the very picture that he is giving us here. They will give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And we can overcome evil in this way. God sees our suffering. 
God sees persecution. God sees malignment and slander for his name. They will give an account and you keep doing good. Now, I want you to notice that's how he draws this conclusion. Verse six can also seem a little strange, but it's the the grand finale to this paragraph. Look at verse six. For this is why the gospel was preached. Just stop right here for a minute. What a thought right there. Here we are talking about suffering for the cause of Christ. This is why the gospel is preached, he says in verse 6. Even to those who are dead, that though judge in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now, there's a lot of different translations trying to figure out exactly what this is driving at. I think the, the Net Bible and the CSB get to the heart of it really well in how they read this. For the, this reason, the gospel is also preached to those who are now dead so that though they might be judged in the flesh according to human standards, they might live in the spirit according to God's standards. The net does similarly with their rendering of that. Though judged in the flesh by human standards, they live spiritually by God's standards. This is trying to drive at what the good news is all about. So let's take a step back for a minute and make sure we have a picture of what the gospel is. One of the facets of the gospel that we sometimes forget about are the words of Isaiah 52 and verse 7, where here is the good news that's being proclaimed. And the good news is your God reigns. We talked about that in this morning's lesson about When Jesus rose from the dead, he ascends to the Father and sits at the right hand of God and is reigning now over heaven and earth and all things. And now Peter says, this is why the gospel is preached. What are you trying to say to us, Peter? And how does this fit in with suffering? Here's what I believe the idea is. As you strive to cease from sin, to live righteously, to do what God says, you are going to be maligned and mistreated and you are going to suffer for it. You will be judged by the world, by their human standards. And you know what the judgment's going to be on you? That you're a wicked person. You're a terrible person. You are a terrible person. For believing what God says. You are going to be judged as a terrible person. Narrow minded, intolerant, wicked and suffer abuse. Because you do not agree with the world's point of view. You are going to be maligned. But here's what the gospel is. They're not the ultimate judge. They're not the authority. Whatever they pronounce on you is not the final judgment. They're going to say all kinds of things about you. And here's your response. That's not true. Instead, what is the gospel message? That you'll be judged by God, by his standards, and pronounced righteous and given life. The hope that we have, the good news that we possess is that God's the ultimate authority. That God's the judge. And you can have the whole world tell you 
What you believe makes you terrible. But they're not the authority. God is the authority. He reigns. And He will judge you righteous, though the world condemns you as wicked. In fact, I think that's implicit in verse 6 because there's a strange part of verse 6 that says, even to those who are dead. What happened to them? Why are they dead? Because the maligning can be more than the maligning. They were judged by the world as unfit and unrighteous. And they die for the cause of Christ. But you will be judged by God as righteous because he's the ultimate authority. All right. So three takeaways. I think it's three. Pretty sure it's three. Yeah, it's three. All right. Three takeaways from this. Number one. When we strive to stop stop sinning, we're going to suffer. You might remember how Paul said it to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12. All who desire to live a godly life will be persecuted. And we're going to have to get used to that water again of that truth. When we strive to stop sinning, there's going to be problems. In a culture that is antagonistic to God, then when you strive to do what is right and you strive to not sin, you are going to suffer mistreatment. You will be abused. You will be maligned. This is what Peter is giving to us, that we give ourselves to Christ when we're baptized for the forgiveness of our sins. You know that trouble is going to happen. I'm not sure I haven't said that to anybody I haven't baptized. That I tell them, now that you've given your life to Jesus, you know what's going to happen? Satan's going to come after you hard because you just switched teams. And he doesn't take that laying down. He doesn't go, oh, okay, another one for God. Okay, that's a bummer. You strive to do what's right, he's coming after you. You try to get your life together and follow him, he's coming after you. You try to live righteously, he's not done with you. He's going to make your life miserable. Keep living a life of sin. He loves to make you comfortable in that. Make your life nice and smooth. But strive for righteousness. We're going to suffer. And so Peter says it and the Apostle Paul says it. Number two. I don't want you to be surprised when the world is is surprised by your decision to stop sinning. They're going to be blown away. That you do not agree with them. That you don't participate with them. That you don't approve of the same things. That you don't say certain sins are acceptable and right. They're not going to go with you on that. And they're going to be just absolutely blown away by that. If you've had any kinds of discussions with people in regards to any kind of sexual sins, you know that's their response. 
Their eyes just get wide. And they're like, I can't believe you think that. I can't believe you really think that. They're surprised. Don't be surprised. They're going to resist you. And they're going to malign you. Number three. You can live righteously and do good because you know that they will have to give an account for the harm that they've done you. And we know that God will judge us worthy of eternal life. That's where we have to move our hope to. If our hope is here, then when we start losing friends for the cause of Christ, we're going to back off and go, okay, well, I don't want that to happen. If we put our hope here and people malign us and slander us for following what God says, then we're going to back off. But when you know that you are good, the gospel is you will be judged by God as righteous. Now I can go ahead and hold fast to the word of God and hold fast to my faith. Because even though they judge me as unworthy, I know I'm being judged by God as worthy. That's our call. To go back to verse one, arm yourself with the same way of thinking. Have your mind ready that to follow him means resistance. To follow him means slander. To follow him means suffering. But you will be judged by God as righteous. Let's go to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, We continue to live in a culture that is shifting further and further from you. We're living in a time, Lord, where wearing the name of your son is now meeting resistance. And Lord, I pray that you would give us boldness, that you would strengthen us for the days ahead that you would help us to arm our minds with the same attitude that your son had. Lord, we see in your son that he did not back down from the truth and that how he lived his life and how he taught about you made him suffer. Lord, make us ready. Help us to be strong. Lord, for days of adversity that may lie ahead, help us to be ready to not be ashamed of you. Help us to be ready to not be ashamed of your son or ashamed of your word or ashamed of our faith. Lord, help us to expect mistreatment. And Lord, help us to be like your apostles that when those days come, we simply glorify you because we were counted worthy to suffer for your name. Lord, help us in that effort. In Jesus' name, amen.